This is Our American Stories, and one of our favorite things to do is bring back old stories, because the great ones stand the test of time. And hey, if you've never heard an old story, it's new to you. Abbott and Costello are comedy legends, but how many of us hear their material nowadays? At the height of their fame in the 1940s, they were among the most popular and the most highly paid entertainers in the world. But Abbott was born into a showbiz family. His father was an advance man for the Ringling Brothers Circus. His mother was a bareback rider. Lou Costello became a comic after failing to break into acting. Almost by chance, Bud Abbott was working at the Casino Theater in Brooklyn, New York in 1931 when a Lou Costello was the comic on stage and Costello needed a substitute straight man. Abbott and Costello were an instant success. Abbott was tall, thin, sardonic, and insulting, even condescending, always ready to slap down Costello for some idiotic comment. Costello was the buffoon, short, fat, always the sympathetic character. They worked the burlesque and vaudeville circuit and got national exposure in 1938 on the popular radio show, The Kate Smith Hour. This led to Broadway to four-movie deal with Universal, and their own national radio show. One of their early radio performances was this one called Who's On First? A skit about baseball they wrote in collaboration with comedy writer John Grant. It became one of their most famous routines and one of the most famous comedy routines in history. Let's take a listen. Well, Costello, I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Habit, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ballplayers nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and... His brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, let's see, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Well, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first base? He does, every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's wife? Yes. <laughs> That. Look, all I want to know is when you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how to... he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the players. Though. I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. Now, let's get on third. Now, how did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mention a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Oh, what is on second? You don't want who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third, third base? base. <laughs> Look, you 
that outfield? Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Now tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? I'm not. Stay out of the infield. <laughs> I want to know what's the guy's name in left field. No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> and the left fielder's name? Why? Because. Oh, he's center field. Me, this Look, look, look. You got a pitcher on a team? Sure. The pitcher's name? Tomorrow. You don't want to tell me today? I'm telling you, then man. go ahead. Tomorrow. What time? What time what? What time tomorrow are you going to tell me who's pitching? Now, listen. Who is not pitching? I'll who break is... your arm, you say. Who's on first? <laughs> I want to know what's the pitcher's name. What's on second? I don't know. Third base. Got <laughs> a catcher? Certainly. The catcher's name? Today. Today. And Kamar's pitcher. Now you've got it. All we got is a couple of days on the well, team. <laughs> you know, I'm a catcher, too. So they tell me. I get behind the plate, do some fancy catching. Kamar's pitching on my team, and a heavy hitter gets up. Yes. Now, the heavy hitter bunched the ball. When he bunched the ball, me being a good catcher, I want to throw the guy out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, that's all you have to do. Just to throw the ball at first base. Yes. Now, who's got it? Naturally. <laughs> Throw the ball to first base. Somebody's got to get it. Now, who has it? Naturally. Who? Naturally. Naturally? Naturally. So I pick up the ball and I throw it to naturally. No, you don't. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's different. That's what I said. You're not saying that. I throw the ball to naturally. You throw it to who? Naturally. That's it. That's what I said. Listen, you ask me. I throw the ball to who? Naturally. Now, you ask me. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's it. Same as you. <laughs> don't change your mind. Same as you. I throw the ball to who? Whoever it is drops the ball and the guy runs a second. Yes. Who picks up the ball and throws it to what? What throws it to I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. Triple play. Yes. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to be caused. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't give a darn. Well, what? I said I don't give a darn. Oh, that's our shortstop. And there you have it, one of the great comic bits of all time. And what timing, folks. And that's all those years in burlesque and in vaudeville doing this many times a day. And by the way, the dozens of comedies these two guys produced provided comic relief to an entire nation steeped in the tragedy of World War II. That's when they came to rise in their fame, and the nation needed the laughs desperately. After the war, their fame declined, and they produced more low-budget ventures such as Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy, my favorite, Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. I cackled like a kid when I was a kid, and now that I still get to see it every once in a while, I still cackle. The two dissolved their partnership in 1957, and Lou Costello died of a heart attack in 1959. While Costello might be the better-remembered comedian of the pair... Costello himself believed that Abbott was the true linchpin of their success and always insisted on splitting their earnings 60-40 in Abbott's favor. Quote, Comics are a dime a dozen, he explained. Good straight men are hard to find. This is Our American Stories, Abbott and Costello's story. Who's on first story? I don't know. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our story of the song series. We love to bring you these stories behind songs you know, but whose stories you don't. Give Me Shelter, George On My Mind, Light My Fire, White Christmas, just a few. And also The Little Drummer Boy and Peace on Earth and how Bing and Bowie came to do that song. And today we want to bring you, though, a story of a song you likely don't know. We don't do a lot of those, but every once in a while the story's so damn good, we've got to tell it. And today's story is brought to us by our own Alex Cortez. It's a song that shouldn't exist. If some people had their way. And if not for one man who had a different opinion from them about how the history should be written. Alex Binius Harris, the co-writer of the song, had a relatively normal life in America. He knew that his grandmother didn't in another country, but no more than that. Growing up, I never knew about her history. I was born in Krakow, Poland. And I think it was a very good decision to leave me unaware of this. I remember my first grade teacher's name, and it was Mrs. Yablonska, which meant apple. <laughs> he didn't know that she shouldn't be alive. I remember saying to my mother, I will never learn how to read. <laughs> but I did. (laughs) And therefore, that he shouldn't be alive. I remember reading James Fenimore Cooper, you know, The Last of the Mohicans. I couldn't imagine what it was like to be a Native American. (laughs) And thus, no song. Life was kind of nice, till the war. But this would change. He knew that I was a survivor, but he didn't really know the whole story. Alex grew up in Washington, D.C., and would visit his grandmother in Southern California. And when he got into the University of Southern California, USC, and was finally physically close to her, she finally not only told him the whole story, she showed him it. Jews tend to be survivors. By chance, at his university, of the over 4,000 universities in the world, there was an archive, the archive, for stories that were like hers. I remember they closed all the bank accounts, you know, Jewish bank accounts were closed, so my parents couldn't withdraw any money. And he was moved enough by her story that he decided to go beyond her story to promote the other stories that were there. He decided to intern there at the USC Shoah Foundation. Here's what he heard. Just prior to the war and at the beginning of the war, there was a heightened feeling of uh, something is going to happen. And people used to congregate in the courtyard 
of the uh, apartment building and talk about war and uh, feeling that uh, if, if something, if, if things were going to happen, things weren't going to be so good for the Jews. But as a child, no, I, I don't think that I felt any anti-Semitism. I really wouldn't have known what that was. She would. Oh, the older people were concerned and talked in hushed tones, you know, and listened to the uh, foreign broadcasts on the uh, radio. Hostilities have been going on since early this morning along the frontiers between Germany and Poland. When war broke out... World War II. Germany has invaded Poland. Bombs started falling. But of course, right away, the schools were closed, and so our lives really changed. I had just received, just prior to that, a puppy. And one of the first things that I had to part with, painfully, was to give up my dog to a shelter because my parents felt that couldn't take care of it with the war approaching. And I distinctly remember having to take him to a shelter. You know, I was only about uh, eight years old. The German invasion of Poland happened on September 1st, 1939. And immediately, some of their closest neighbors, formerly a motley crew of every type of Pole, came to the courtyard looking more uniform. They appeared with armbands sporting swastikas. They turned out to have been fifth columnists. So it was really uh, kind of an incredible feeling to realize that you've been trusting people and, and, and telling them your feelings and your attitudes. And they were sympathizers of the Nazis or of the Germans at the time, you know. I don't think we really fully realized what Nazism was till it hit us later. At that time, we just talked about Germany invading Poland. My father, of course, left right away. I mean, all the men, as soon as uh, war broke out, all the men went east, you know, on a long march, sort of running away. So all the women were left in the building uh, then my father came back, fortunately, but there was this incredible fear, you know, not knowing what was happening to my father. And I could sense that, I could feel it, I could see it in my mother. That was the beginning of it, you know. I was just kind of totally unsettled life. And by winter, her father was back. They moved us into what used to be the Jewish section of town. Actually, they moved us twice, you know, they, the ghetto kept shrinking. <laughs> uh, so th- at first it was a much larger, and then uh, the, it shrank some more and shrank some more. We were squished together in a tight place, but there were lots of other children. We didn't have school, so there was more time to play. It wasn't so bad. I mean, for a child, for the grown-ups, it must have been terrible. When I think about it, now that I'm a parent, you know, uh, must have been hard. Her parents both worked at a factory owned by a gentleman named Julius Madrich, who wasn't Jewish. The Nazis forcing them to leave their little girl to fend for herself most of the day. Just sort of hung around, really. I was all alone, really. And then as things progressed and got worse and worse in the ghetto, it became evident that, at least for my parents, that the best thing 
would be for me to go out with them to work. My parents were able to get to fake my age, make it two years older, to allow me to go out of the ghetto with them. She was only nine years old, pretending to be 11. And I was then started working on a sewing machine. And in 1943, the Jewish ghetto that they were in... Closed completely. That was the last selection. One day, they came in, and the German... Well, I don't know whether they were SS or, or soldiers or whoever, took some of the children and absolutely knocked their heads on the walls. They swung them by the legs and killed them that way. It was a horrible experience. We all saw it. They were transported to Plashov, which became a labor camp. At first it was a labor camp, then it became a concentration camp. I was afraid. The overwhelming emotion that has uh, probably ruled my life has been fear, fear of authority and fear in general. And after the break, we're going to continue with Selena Benitez's gut-wrenching story. And by the way, we love bringing you the hard ones like we promised. They're not always upbeat. There's a tremendous ending to this one, though. And America plays a centrifugal part in the ending, as it did for so many who suffered at the hands of Nazis throughout Europe. And by the way, we're also going to bring you the story of the sun, and of course, the story of that song. And again, usually our stories of the song are about songs you know and love. But this is a story of a song you don't know, but you should. And that's why we're bringing it to you. Selena Benitez's story, so many people trapped by Nazism. Their story, too, in a way. Her son's story, her grandson's story. Here on Our American Stories. And we continue now with Alex's story on Selena Benitez, a survivor of the Holocaust. Every day, Selena and her parents walked 90 minutes from the Plashov labor camp to the Madrich factory where they worked and 90 minutes back at night. We were not as fortunate as uh, the Schindler people who were able to stay and live at the factory. Selena is referencing Oscar Schindler, whom Steven Spielberg's award-winning movie Schindler's List is about, and who also had a factory and through his friendship with the Nazis was able to convince them that his workers would be more productive if they avoided the walk and lived at the factory. 
you know that plush of the camp was made originally on the Jewish cemetery. So they crushed the stones. So we walked every day over people's names, you know. So that was kind of humiliating too, especially to people who had, you know, relatives buried at that cemetery. And then once the camp became a concentration camp, uh, we no longer could go out. And so Madrid established his factory in the camp. And in the concentration camp, they separated her father from Selena and her mother. And she saw things too. I witnessed a couple hangings of, of young boys. He happened to have sung a song or something. And they, you know, they hung him for that. But their boss, Julius Madrich, would never do such a thing. Madridge was a wonderful person. He was somehow just got caught. You know, there were a lot of Germans and Austrians who were caught in the situation, uh, none of their doing, really, and they did the best they could. They did bring in food for us. Uh, Madridge brought in medications. Very decent people. Then, in January 1945, the Nazis realized that the Soviets were approaching Krakow and they completely dismantled Plashev. All bodies that had previously been buried in mass graves were exhumed and burned on site. By the 20th of the month, the Soviets arrived and found only a barren patch of land. All of the remaining prisoners had been sent to Auschwitz including Selena. The men were shipped earlier, and the women were then shipped in the cattle cars, and it took some time. We didn't really realize that we were getting going to Auschwitz till we arrived there in the middle of the night, and they emptied out the cars, and we saw where we were, and it was a very frightening experience. Auschwitz was the most infamous of concentration camps, and the largest one, where 74% of the prisoners there were Jews, and 87% of the Jews there were slaughtered. In total, 1.1 million fellow human beings were slaughtered. Fear, smell, burning flesh, shouting orders, uh, not knowing which way to, music being played, slush on, on you know, on, on the mud on the, on the road, you know, the Germans barking at us, get out, get out, get out, uh, you know, from the cattle cars, finding ourselves on this, and realizing where we were, and, you know, the fear that uh, that was the end, you know. The first place they took us to, they walked us into the uh, sauna, which is supposedly the, the, the lousing room or whatever. But uh, we at that point already had heard what happened in Auschwitz. So when they told us to strip and take our clothes off and they shaved our heads and all that, and they shoved us into the, the shower room, you know, we didn't know what to expect. You know, uh, 
whether we were going to have the gas or whether we were going to have actual water. It was, a, it was a horrible experience, you know. When the water finally came, it was just like we couldn't believe it. And then, the one single time that she was separated from her mother all of these years in concentration camps, the angel of death, Dr. Joseph Mengele, selected their barrack for what they called a selection. Selected to run through the gas chamber. Her mother was out working, and Selena, then 12 years of age, was to face death alone. We were told to strip and walk through, and on the first run through, uh, Ms. Dr. Mengele pushed me to the left side with some of the older women. And then I don't know what happened. He had a change of heart and told everybody to go through again. And when we went through again, I just, I don't know how I got the nerve, but I looked up at him and I said three words in German, lassen Sie mich. Let me go. And he let me go. He let me go to the right. And I ran out like crazy, you know, clutching my clothes in my hands in the nude. My mother returned and found out that the barrack had been taken for selection. And she was frantic, absolutely frantic. I remember having run out from the selection and my mother returning and running up and down looking for me. I mean, she was absolutely frantic. And the suspense would continue. They lined us up again and told us they were going to tattoo us, tattoo our number on us. And, at the, and I was even asking my mother, is it going to hurt? Is it going to hurt? And then all of a sudden, they shoved us into the cars. Rail cars. And we went off without the tattoos. We couldn't, you know, everything was just, everything happened. Uh, and you didn't understand why. Well, this time, there was a good reason why. They were on the rail car because they were on the list. When we got to to Brinitz, you know, and Schindler came to the uh, to the station to pick us up, and you know, to the rail station, we couldn't believe that we actually made it. Made it to likely freedom, hopefully. Soon enough, 1,200 Jews were on Schindler's list. And many often think that all of them were his factory workers. But 200 of them weren't, including Selena and her mom. Schindler came to Madrid and made him a proposition and said, you know, I'm taking my people to Czechoslovakia. Why don't you re-establish a factory in Czechoslovakia, and Madrid said he didn't want to. He had had enough of the whole thing. But Schindler said to him, well then, I'm making a list of people that I'm taking with me, and I am, because you're, we're friends, I want you to give me some names from your people. And that's how we got on the list. It took Schindler a while to bribe enough people to get them out of Auschwitz and at great personal risk to himself, having already been arrested 
three times. But get them, he did. And after the break, the final portion of this remarkable story of a song. And up next, the song part. This is Our American Stories. American stories and now we return to this remarkable story of a song and it's a story about so much more as you can tell but now the song part back to Alex now we know why Selena is alive why her grandson Alex Benius Harris is alive and why there is a song that can have a story about it in May of 2014, the USC Shoah Foundation hosted the Ambassadors for Humanity Gala. And my grandmother, on behalf of the Jewish survivors community, was asked to speak. And the award recipient for that year of the Ambassador for Humanity was uh, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. I would have never believed that uh, my experiences would ever be written up in a fabulous book or that this incredible movie would be made, Schindler's List or that I would ever be talking to a huge audience like that in the presence of the President of the United States. When Steven Spielberg was considering Liam Neeson for the lead role of Oscar Schindler, there was a concern that the star was too attractive to play the part in such a serious movie. So one of the studio's executives made a call, a call to his mother of all people to get her advice and she said Mr. Schindler was very handsome so he gets the job and this mother would know it was Selena how extraordinarily improbable or some might say probable through providence And for Alex's part, when he interned at the Shoah Foundation, there was another intern there who was also passionate about music. I'm a senior studying neuroscience and piano performance at the University of Southern California. I started playing piano at a very young age, at four and a half. So it's always been with me. Music and neuroscience, there's definitely a lot of overlap. The way that music makes people feel interests me very much. I really would love to study more about why music can bring people to tears, for example. You're listening to Ambrose Sohn, and Ambrose and Alex noticed that there was a surprising amount of music in Shoah's archive, including melodies that survivors had written while they were at Auschwitz. 
and they decided that they could compose a song out of it on the piano. One of the first melodies that we encountered um, was from an Italian Jewish survivor. Her name was Lucia Mato, and she uh, used a traditional Yiddish melody but set her own text to it. Qui in questa terra triste maledetta soffrono molti figli di Israel. Now from Lucia's melody, we wanted to use something in the context of pre-Holocaust Europe. And for people like Lucia, life was probably good. And we thought in the context of a dance with people enjoying themselves and laughing, that the waltz was a great way of conveying this emotion. So I uh, started by writing the first movement, uh, which um, is titled Exodus. And uh, it re represents how um, just normal people living their daily lives were basically ripped away from everything they knew and sent to Auschwitz in this very forceful manner. To convey in a musical way what people would have felt as they walked off the train once it arrived at Auschwitz, that sinking, crushing feeling of seeing the most horrendous sight in front of you, of having your loved ones just torn away, we decided to directly represent that on the keys by walking down from high to low. The second movement I entitled Ashes to Earth. It represents the visual image of inmates arriving at the camp and seeing ashes as they come in, billowing out of the chimneys of the crematoria. It had to represent something that was cyclical. This wasn't just a one-time thing, this was constant. The last movement was more of a collaborative epping because it grew organically and we entitled it Inner Refractions. The reason that we chose Inner Refractions was that survivors left the camp a little bit hollowed out and they had to re-conceptualize the world and what it meant to them and so these refractions are meant to be sort of hollow ghosts and the ghosts exist within all survivors and within the camp as well. And this song of theirs was not just their song, it was the song to be performed by them on January 27th, 2015 at the 70th anniversary event, remembering the liberation of Auschwitz. In a few years' time, our generation won't have any direct access to survivors who actually lived through that experience. So the moment we found out uh, we were going to be traveling to Poland to perform this piece, um, we were understandably pretty excited. And it was an incredible feeling knowing that the work paid off and that we'd have this chance to play for survivors. 100 survivors 
to be exact. Including Grandma taking in Alex's and Ambrose's music about them. We were looking over the plans of how the stage was going to be set up and everything like that. And we quickly realized that... uh, the stage was not going to be able to support the weight of two full grand pianos. I'm told to uh, basically reduce our entire two-piano suite um, into a one-piano work for four hands. We were going to have to do a lot of rewriting and condensing in order to, to delineate the parts so that we weren't constantly uh, jutting into each other. And we were changing the piece up until the hours before the performance. Through the whole condensing process, the, the piece matured in a way that um, it really couldn't have if we hadn't been told that we had a week to kind of rewrite the entire thing for one piano. That's the moment when it hits you like, this is real life, this is happening. When they tell you, you're on in five seconds. Music is really the one true universal language in that across all boundaries, across all cultures and language, we will all be able to understand these melodies and interpret it in the way that we'd like. Music has that ability to keep life going. And I think it's our duty as young people to educate other young people about the ills of genocide. We, the survivors, who are now in our 80s and 90s, have definitely passed the torch to the new generation. And so it's important to raise awareness about uh, what happened and to keep fresh in our memories that this type of thing could happen again. The fact that we were able to contribute to that message in such a personal way through music is really incredible. And I was glad that he had that experience. In terms of listening to him play, that was fantastic. Every grandmother would love to have her grandson play. She said, I'm a proud grandma today. But I knew for her that it was so emotional coming back to this awful place. And I could feel it even though I know that a lot of these emotions she had wrapped up for a long time after the war. She was finally able to let all the ghosts go away. Out of the ashes of Auschwitz, there is a new generation. And what a story. And thanks to the USC Shoah Foundation who brought us this story. It's from their extraordinary archive of more than 50,000 video testimonies from survivors, witnesses, and even perpetrators of the Holocaust. And thanks to our friend Susan Crown for putting us on to the Shoah Foundation. You can watch their video testimonies on their website at sfi.usc.edu. That's sfi.usc.edu. Selena, 
Benias's story, her grandson Alex's story, the transcendent music that he wrote in honor of all who suffered at the hands of the Nazis during the Holocaust. This is Lee Habib, their stories here on Our American Stories. American stories. The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened were the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days, cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast. And there are lights, lots and lots of lights. We like lights. As little kids, I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone worker. The real inspiration came from his job where he worked for the telephone company, and it was, you know, the little light bulbs in the early telephone switchboards. That gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas lights. What child is the Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem, where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas. But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, 
when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival they called Yule. You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered, you slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand. The beer has been made. It's perfect time for a feast. Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, firs, and holly into their homes. Over the centuries, the concept grew, and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. Today, picking out a tree is a family tradition. And in any given year, American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman, and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Rocks Estate Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. The biggest thing that I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees. So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all, that is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus? We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even have known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity. Matthew's Gospel gives us the star of Bethlehem and the wise men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures. There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a, a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born. This is the first example of Christmas gift giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when he was born. The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense, because one of the few details you'll find in the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December, 
because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night, starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March. So how did Jesus end up with a birthday on December 25th? Long before Jesus was born, the Romans celebrated many pagan holidays, particularly in December, and these end-of-year festivities set the stage for our modern Christmas holiday. This is Our American Stories. More on how Christmas came to be as an American celebration and our national holiday after these messages. our American stories. And we're answering the question, why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Let's pick up where we left off. One Roman holiday was Saturnalia, which began on December 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days. And you can think of it as sort of a, a big office party, but in togas. And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity. The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party, and it was quite enjoyable as well. And then in between Saturnalia and New Year's, there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman-related god on December 25th. That god, Mithras, was born and honored on December 25th. After Christianity became Rome's official religion in the 4th century, Leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them. But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to, that Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner and he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music, just like we have today. You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin. And you find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular. They're not in Latin, they're languages everybody knows. And people enjoy these songs, and people sing them together. And very quickly there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church. But medieval caroling was not just about caroling. It was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl. 
getting drunker with every note they sang. So what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly. It's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry. All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well, especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints' days. And Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them. But there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day. Besides feasting, this day also involved gift-giving. So what Martin Luther suggested was this. Instead of telling kids about St. Nicholas bringing gifts, they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christ Kindle. That's right, Christ Kindle. Well, Luther's attempts failed, but Christ Kindle got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Chris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation. Ezra Stiles, who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether. There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas, a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday. And in 1659, it banned Christmas too. The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice, and they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year. During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton. 
This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River, as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey. Because they were all drunk, they had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. By the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive. Early Republic records are full of instances where people in, you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner when the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door and they go through this very ancient ritual of give us some food and drink or we're going to throw rocks through your windows. And so there's, both those traditions are, are still there. But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs. Respectable middle-class Americans wanted to take the rowdy Christmas, the public Christmas that took place outdoors, and move it indoors. I mean, these are people who had property. They were afraid of destruction. They were afraid of losing things that they owned. So they want to take this public rowdy event and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family, around this private gathering that takes place in the house. This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world. And it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the 1800s. They would reinvent old world Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday. And they would mold our image of jolly old St. Nick. New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas. Clement Clark Moore, a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature, who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood, and designed St. Peter's Episcopal Church, had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly, he created the modern American version of Christmas. And when we come back, more on the story of Christmas in America and how it came to be. This is Our American Stories. For all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
This is Our American Stories. And by the way, that great keyboard playing. There's a whole story to that keyboard playing in Charlie Brown's Christmas. And our annual Charlie Brown Christmas story will play, as it always does during the Christmas season, several times. But back to the story of Christmas and how it came to be here in America. We ended our last segment hearing about how a New York intellectual named Clement Clark Moore wrote The Night Before Christmas, a poem that would forever enshrine the characteristics of Santa Claus. Let's pick it up from there. What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century and put them all together and added his own, Moore's own imaginings. Moore's poem becomes a path-breaking moment, a watershed, in how Christmas is celebrated. Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the old world. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse. Before the mid-19th century, Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives, you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City. Both Old World legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of St. Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter. And Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse. They had horns, long red tongue covered with fur, tail, and hoof. And he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas. And one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus. But Clement Clark Moore St. Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky, led not by a horse, but by eight reindeer. But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. <laughs> Each with its own name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Donda and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure. One interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version, it was, Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. 
Most books change happy to merry. As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took Moore's Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come. Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about uh, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican Party, he created it. The image of Uncle Sam that we've all come to know is a creation of Thomas Nast. And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander. So he becomes your grandfather. Gives him the full flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in, in the Victorian uh, world. Um, he was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe. Nast's image of Santa became indelible and with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint. Nast does this year after year. He creates lots of the things we associate with Santa Claus. The list of naughty and nice, living at the North Pole, and that becomes the image of Santa Claus. And by the mid-19th century, the Christmas tree, a variation of the ancient Norse custom, became the centerpiece to the family-oriented American Christmas, all because of one picture. On December 23, 1848, the London News published an image of the young Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their family assembled around a Christmas tree, part of Albert's German tradition. England fell in love with it immediately. Two years later, this same image of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert was republished in a very popular American magazine with a couple of alterations. They took out Queen Victoria's crown and took off Prince Albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more American. And it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class Americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition, this is a tradition worthy of your home. The Christmas tree had officially arrived in America. By 1856, President Franklin Pierce was putting one in the White House. In 1939, copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph. The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago. And they want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in verse about this woebegone reindeer. Originally calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Towards the end, they decide they need something with a little more punch, so it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and it's a huge hit. Ten years later, in 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music. He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry, and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song. You need to record it. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, 
But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. Autry finally agreed to record the song, but only as a B-side to one of his records. It became the biggest hit of Autry's career. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never And this is our American Rudolph stories. And by the way, that's why you listen to your wife. Gene Autry listened to his wife. Smart man. And by the way, imagine Rollo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. What a mistake. When we come back, chock full of information. That's what you are here on this show. Answers to your questions. I know I'm learning a lot. Thanks, Hengler, for putting this together. Greg, as always, does a great job on these pieces. One last segment about all the things you didn't know about Christmas and how Christmas, as we know it and celebrate it, came to be. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, our hour special broadcast on how Christmas came to be in this country. And I've learned a lot, and I know you have too, and now it's time to close out the hour, the final chapter in this story. Another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia, Irving Berlin, and sung by Bing Crosby. This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written. It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941, just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed. The song is White Christmas. So the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war. But it catches on in the fall of 42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war. And these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of GIs, are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring-pulling, nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942. White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for. In 1946, 
Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life. It's Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern. And it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda films for the U.S. Army. The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey, a man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born. Mother, what do you want? Mother, this, this is George. I, I thought sure you'd remember me. The impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every Steven Spielberg film. For inspiration, Spielberg has said that he watches It's a Wonderful Life before starting any new film. And whenever he goes on location for a new film, he takes along a copy of It's a Wonderful Life to show his cast how movies should be made. And it also must be said, the kiss between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed is hands down the greatest kiss in movie-making history. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... Oh, George, George, George. The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV. There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room. After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962, came a flurry of animated specials. But in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson advertising agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow. Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was nine years old. They were eight years old, seven years old. We're all in one recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums. The work progressed, but time was running out. We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all, and they said, we're going to have to run it because it's scheduled for four days from now, but, you know, nice try, but it, it just doesn't work. So as we went through these minefields, it's amazing it ever even got on the air. One issue that concerned everyone was Schultz's insistence that the show quote the Bible. One of us said, you know, do you really think we can, you know, animate a kid reading from the Bible? Do you think we can get, get this through? And I remember he said at the time, 
Well, if we don't do it, who will? Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. Bill staged it in a very, very simple format. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the way that wonderful actor, Chris Shea, read it. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Then, in 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of One Boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie. You know, I'd been thinking for weeks what I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus, and he had these big, watery blue eyes and a huge beard and all, and he's looking at me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank. Ho, 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 then what's your name, little boy? It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap, and he says, what would you like me to pass in legislation, Sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, All right, <laughs> how about a football, kid? How about a nice uh, football? Hey, football. I wanted a BB gun. <laughs> so he pushed me off his lap and this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I played there for a minute and I knew that I was not a fit person to talk to the great. Santa Claus was obviously a star. These days, the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold, dark winter nights the way the yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago. People make up holidays. Traditions are invented. But there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones and we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate. For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols in church and in the streets amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child 2,000 years ago. Something touches American somewhere down deep in his belly button about Christmas. He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. <laughs> he just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street, and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, that something happens to you. You enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy it.
from our family at Our American Stories, we'd like to say to you and yours, Merry Christmas to you all, and to all, a good night. And this is Our American Stories, and again, that's all Greg Hengler and all the folks he works with putting these great pieces together. And by the way, one thing that really struck me through the piece, and I'm sure you had your favorite, but Irving Berlin was a Jewish man, and he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America, and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly is the most American thing about America, that I could say a sentence like that. We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas, we talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas, and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.